Um, great. Would you please start with a reading from your book? Everyone's experience with democracy is different. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the West expected an international order of liberal democracy and free markets to be the dominant paradigm for the world. But this did not materialize. There may be fewer traditional dictatorships across the globe in the 21st century, but the world is increasingly dominated by governments that are both democratic and authoritarian on the same afternoon. This is the age of hybrid regimes. The importance of civil liberties and protections from the tyranny of majority are the two great promises of liberal democracy. Those two values are in recession in the current political moment. Strong men have won electoral mandates from voters motivated by religious and ethnic nationalism, economic anxieties, and disillusionment earlier, weak, inefficient, or corrupt elite. The modern strongmen share a certain set of qualities. They embrace militant nationalism, exude an aura of a personal menace and strength, persecute political opponents, and seek to control media coverage. They have little patience for criticism and despise civil society. They have a certain love for efficiency and disregard for cumbersome democratic processes. Okay, thank you. So my first question about the book is about the origin story. When did you start writing it? What were you trying to show? And you make clear in the prologue that the rise of strongmen is not something confined to India and Turkey. You had a lot of other choices right. in countries. So what made you pick those two countries? Well, you know, when you, one is the practical part of it. The book I wrote is part of a series called Columbia Global Reports. They do these short novella length reported books, say 40,000 words. So when you take, pick up a subject like this, then you're like, okay, I have so many words. How many case studies can I look into? If this was, I was doing this for, say, Penguin Press or someone else, a bigger project, I would have taken three countries, ideally. But when you don't have that kind of space, then you have to make the best choices you can. So you don't want to do something like India and then a country which has no echoes of that country. Because you kind of want to write about places that are that interest you in, in a new way. Not, so, when, so, so what about Turkey did you think was echoing India? Both countries were kind of formed after the collapse of two major empires, the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire. They had their founding fathers were modernizing figures in love with European modernity and like tried to push major social engineering projects. And secularism was the kind of top-down approach that both Nehru in India and Ataturk in Turkey, although to variable degrees, they pushed that idea. But there was a set, subset, actually a big chunk of the population, which didn't quite buy that, but it remained dormant. It wasn't the dominant political ethos for a long time, but there wasn't a complete consensus. So in both cases, you see in the 90s in Turkey, the rise of the religious parties, you know, the, the Islamist parties, and they had various incarnations to the point when in 2002, you have the most moderate of those Islamist parties called Justice and Development Party, which was founded by these two young politicians, one an economist and another former football player and businessman and the mayor of Istanbul, Rajab Tayyip Erdogan and Abdullah Gul. So they positioned themselves as kind of conservative Muslim Democrats, which was kind of an echo of the European Democrats. It's also very Turkish because, you know, you're right next to Europe or you're in Europe. So those are the debates that shape you. In India, we saw the consensus around the Congress party's nationalism and Nehruvian secularism breakdown again in the late 80s. And we saw the rise of the Hindu Nationalist Party, the Bharti Janta Party, as the challenger to the dominant consensus. 
And both countries at the same time, in the 90s, if you look at Turkey, the big war was the Kurdish war on the periphery, on the borders. And the 90s in, in India means Kashmir and the insurgency in Kashmir. So there's, there's all these parallels. And naturally, one gravitates towards a place which does have, you know, when, you, when you're looking at a case like this, when you're thinking about a liberal democracy, elected autocrats, hybrid regimes, strong men. These are phrases that just go together. And then you also want to move towards a place which kind of reminds you of what you know the best. And in that sense, also Turkey being in a different continent, in a different location, I was naturally gravitated towards it because of all these reasons. And it turned out to be a good, decent choice. I was happy with it. Yeah, I'd like to talk more about Turkey later, but I thought we would go more in order because the India chapter is the first chapter. So I'd like to talk about the concept of tacit approval. And you've included a really profound quote from Nayanthara Segal, who's a prize-winning essayist and novelist and also the niece of Jawaharlal Nehru. Right. And in 2015, mm-hmm. he returned her Sahitya Academy Prize, it's a national literature prize, and Segal wrote of Modi in her statement, returning the prize, we must assume he dares not alienate evildoers who support his ideology. And I loved this quote because thinking beyond its context, it it felt strongly evocative to me of Trump. But what Modi does so well is tacit approval. And I was hoping you could talk to me more about his skill with that. Look, I mean, that's what a good politician does. I don't like his politics. I don't believe in his ideology of majoritarianism and violence. But he's very good at doing what he is. In fact, all these strongmen, I mean, Chavez was brilliant at doing what he did. Erdogan is very good at doing what he does. What's important to a Modi is not just how people outside India think of him. I mean, that's important to some degree, but just the nature of India and India being so big saves you from a lot. I mean, you're not like some minor country that people can just kick around. Mm-hmm. But uh, what happens is that when he has to, as prime minister, how do you communicate with your people that this is kosher, this is all right? Like if somebody is lynched, there was a famous case of you know, this man called Muhammad Akhlaq who was lynched an hour outside New Delhi for the allegation that he might have killed a cow or he might have had beef in his house. You know, you could basically, for having a burger, a man could be killed. And it was a lynching in the style of the American South in the, you know, 30s or 20s. You know, kind of Elmer Till kind of came to mind when I went there and met his family and heard the details of it. If you had a regular prime minister, like you had a liberal prime minister, and this happens an hour from the prime minister's house, Ideally, you would see, like, you know, when things would happen in the United States, Obama was very quick to react in many of such cases. So you would have an Indian prime minister coming out and talking very strongly against it and saying this is not acceptable and moving the police forces and getting the people involved arrested. Instead, Modi kept quiet. He said something after five or six days. But that is how tacit approval works. When he started tweeting about all kinds of things, agricultural. Right, he's very vocal on many other issues, so his silence means a lot. Yeah, no, that, that's how it is done. When you stay silent, when something like that happens, what you are signaling to your people is, look, I won't say a word. Go ahead, do what you need to do. I mean, that's that's how it is done. You know, you won't send an email saying, guys, I'll stay quiet and you do what you need to. It's done through action. That, that's how an effective politician would do it. I'm surprised you're not mentioning right now at this moment the Gujarat program in 2002, where it's sort of on a much larger scale of... of That's that's well known. Okay. Modi is kind of synonymous with the program of 2002. I mean, nobody had heard. Like, I had never heard of Modi before. I, I was living in India. I was working in Delhi as a journalist. 
as a reporter for a website. And I was in my office when a colleague turned to me and saying, oh, this just happened in Gujarat. Mm-hmm. It's falling apart. This is crazy. And I was like, who's, what's, what's there? And they said, oh, there's this Narendra guy called Narendra Modi, who's the chief minister. And the train was burnt. And now they're taking the bodies into the city. There'll be riots. This will be mad. And that was the first time you kind of heard of Modi. So for my generation of journalists or academics or writers, for us, Modi, yeah, no, Modi burst onto the national conscience of India as the man under whose watch the worst televised pogrom happened in the history of independent India. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of violence, like the mobs that went out, they had printouts of addresses. They knew exactly which business was owned by a Muslim person, which house was owned by a Muslim family. It was very well organized, you know, kind of targeting. And the violence was lethal. Like, there were pregnant women whose bellies were torn with swords and the children and the fetus was killed. It was it was gruesome violence. So that mm-hmm. is where Modi comes from. I mean, that... But- the apologists and the sort of the sense that allowed him to become prime minister and to get over what should have been really a career ending scandal was the sense that he had only been tacitly involved as opposed to. Well, you know, when you have, a, I mean, this is a man who's always been in control of whatever he has run. He's really a strong man in that sense that the ship he runs, everything happens only when he says it. He's not like as he has a cabinet in Delhi, he has a set of ministers. Nobody does anything without Modi giving his nod first. And there's a great line that Robert Kaplan, the American writer, he went to see Modi in 2009. And Kaplan was quite charmed by his, you know, business talk, governance, development, FDI. And then at certainly at some point, Kaplan realizes this man is so much in control. He completely controls everything in Gujarat. How could it be that a pogrom of that scale occurs and he has nothing to do with it? So you don't get in that kind of cataclysmic violence, you don't get phone recordings or video recordings or documents showing the links between who gave which order. But circumstantial evidence and the very fact, just the nature of the man, and he is he is complicit in that in that sense. Yeah. There's a moral, you might not find legal evidence to book him, but, but when you look at it through the lens of morality, this is a man who will always have to live with that. One of the risks of writing a book that is as timely as yours is that relevant material is happening even after you've gone to press. And one of the things that's happened since then is the BJP victory in Uttar Pradesh, which is the most populous state in India. And I think the returns were announced a couple of weeks ago. Right. It was extremely right. surprising. The BJP won by a large margin. I don't believe they were expecting to win. They hadn't even run a chief minister candidate. And the, the they're not running the chief because they had Modi as the face. Uh, it was it was kind of a referendum on Modi. And he, he turned towards his old ways during the campaign. His various statements throughout the electoral campaign were very racist, just soaked in sectarian hatred and very problematic. Not the kind of language a prime minister should use, mm-hmm. but you know, these are odd times. Now, prime ministers and presidents say strange things. So we're kind of getting used to this new age. But yeah, no, the victory wasn't initially, nobody was sure that they would win. As time went by, kind of sectarian tensions were stoked and increased. The temperature kept getting higher. You sort of knew that, okay, they're playing the same old game that they know very well. And they did win. I didn't know that electorally they could win. I mean, just numbers wise, that there are just so many Muslims and lower caste people that other parties would have They lose when people vote by the caste. When, when lower caste people vote for lower caste parties, BJP loses. But when lower caste people or middle caste people vote as Hindus, BJP wins. So that was the difference. This time, it was all about Muslims and Hindus. That's how they framed it. 
and Modi. And Modi symbolizes something, you know. I wanted to go to Modi's first Independence Day speech. Yeah, excellent piece of theater. <laughs> so, this is Modi. Even after independence, we have had to face the poison of casteism and communalism. How long will these evils continue? Let us resolve for once in our hearts. Let us put a moratorium on all such activities for 10 years. We shall march ahead to a society which will be free from all tension. And to me, this was a strong reminder of the myth of post-racial America, in which exactly. you've achieved a status in which race doesn't matter. And if you, as a member of an oppressed or historically discriminated against category, say that race does matter, then you're the one who's brought race into the conversation. Exactly. No, when he gave that speech, like, you know, all of uh, Delhi editors, you know, major figures and columnists, they completely went gaga. I remember Twitter that day, like some of the most famous names in Indian journalism just falling over each other and saying, what a speech, this is brilliant, this is like the new hope for new India, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, let's see, you know, this guy is good. He's a, he's a very good orator, but I didn't believe him. I didn't believe him then. And then four days later, he announced a campaign. Uh, there was a bipolar or what you call them, special elections in America, in Uttar Pradesh on various seats. And the man he chose to lead the electoral campaign was the man he has now chosen to lead Uttar Pradesh. Proper bigots, bigot, head of a religious sect, but a very dangerous man whose, whose rhetoric has been full of basically incitement for violence against minorities. There's a man called Yogi Aditya. So after making that speech in the parliament, a week later, he chose Yogi Adityanath to lead the campaign in UP. And now that they have won the elections, he has chosen him to be the chief minister of the biggest state in India. So, you know, the facade was, I mean, if you want to believe it, sure, go ahead. But if you want to find signs that this is that this is just talk, there's all of this signs and evidence, you know, scattered around the country. It's a question of choosing what you want to see. Moving on to the Turkish half of the book. It begins with the story of a woman named Merve Karvacha, and I thought she was the most vivid character in the section of the book. And it oh. could be because I wrote my own feelings on feminism and women in politics onto her story. So can you summarize Merve Karvacha for the people listening to this podcast? Well, they should read the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Merve was this, I think her story is, in fact, very, very important for the current moment because... We, we are again in the middle of this debate over the presence of Muslim women in the European public sphere, the headscarf, and the European Court of Justice just came out with a hearing on the same subject recently saying, oh, banning a headscarf is perfectly fine. So with this debate that started in France with the burkini, with the headscarf, with the schoolgirls being thrown up, this debate has been fought for decades. And this has been settled, fought, debated to death and settled in Turkey a long time ago. And the arguments have been made on both sides. And the woman who was the symbol of that debate was Marva Kavakci. So the, the Turkish elite, the old Turkish elite before the rise of AKP, were the followers of ideas of Ataturk in a, in a calcified form. It was called Kemalism. So essentially authoritarian secularism with a complete disdain for any exhibition of religious practice or religious symbol, which was not like American secularism or the secularism as we know it in South Asia. It's very different. It seems to be the very overt non-practicing of Islam. Yeah, it's a non-practicing and practice-banning of Islam, uh, if you think of Kamalism as that. It does not tolerate any. So she won the elections and as a member of what was an earlier incarnation of the AKP and in May, this is 1999. went to the parliament to take her oath. 
to join as a member. Young woman, 31, and the entire opposition, or the ruling party at the time, these, these were in the opposition. Well, the legislators, they just get up and start shouting at her, ask her to get out, literally. And she's not allowed to take oath, and she's thrown out of the parliament. She loses her citizenship, and she and her younger sister and her parents eventually have to leave, and they have to leave as refugees for America. To think of all places, they go to Texas. People who want to practice Islam and lead their lives and study computer sciences find no space in Turkey, but they find space in Richardson, Texas. And these girls go to school there. They get their degrees, engineering degrees, but they study computer sciences and get their PhDs later, one, both from, interestingly, the, the great black university, the Howard University in Washington, D.C., because the politics of hair appeals to them in the African-American context and this headscarf in the Turkish context. So they both go to Howard University and get their PhDs there and then return to Turkey. By the time things have changed and AKP is rising and they join the party and work for the party. And then at the end of this, in 2015, June, a couple of years ago, the younger sister also contests an election from Istanbul, wins, and actually enters the Turkish parliament as the first woman wearing a headscarf. And now, the interesting thing is that nobody blinks an eye. In Turkey, you just find women with, you know, dyed hair, blonde hair, red hair, headscarf, not headscarf. And people accepted the fact that, look, there's people with different ideas about what to do with their hair. And now it's normal. Nobody blinks an eye. So what struck me about the incident where she was shouted out of parliament by her colleagues was the gender discrimination. It seemed to be just this idea of Kamala's practice and not wearing the headscarf had a much bigger impact on women in politics than, than it had. It had a much bigger impact on women all around. They were not allowed to wear headscarves in schools, in universities. A lot of women lost out on years of college and university or, or government buildings. You couldn't work in a public sector office. They couldn't get jobs if they wore headscarves. So it was one thing the Turks needed to correct and they have fixed that. But now there are other battles. Mm -hmm. So part of Erdogan's legacy is about the growing comfort of Turkish political culture with practicing Islam, but also with Kurdistan, a rather complicated legacy in which he'd initially been trying to invest in a lot of these development, but partially because of the security situation, that's become much more problematic. And I imagine, well, this this comes across in the book, is that you have this background of growing up in the 1990s in a very militarized Kashmir, right. and seeing echoes of that in Kurdistan. It was it was like going home, so it was very easy for me going there. It's a scary place, but then when you grow up in a scary place, it doesn't well, you know, Erdogan did try, but at some point, you know, he he went quite far as a, as a Turkish politician using this idea of, look, we are all Muslims, let's do it together. And he did try to solve it. But I think at some point, what was key, you know, if you essentially look at the last four years of Erdogan, he's been driven by one thing, all his decisions. If you look at Erdogan's life in the last four to five years, all his political decisions, whether it comes to changing his position on Kurds, whether you think about his involvement in Syria, or various judicial or administrative reforms. The key thing is that after he finished two terms as a prime minister, he's still young. So he didn't want to give up power and saying, all right, now I'll retire in my 50s. So he shifted jobs and became the president. Now, if you're the president in Turkey, it's a parliamentary system. The prime minister has the power. You are kind of a ceremonial head. Now, he's like, I can't be the ceremonial head. I build this town. This party is my party. This prime 
minister is like a dude I picked up and made him the prime minister. It's like, you know, when Putin switched his jobs with his prime minister at one point. That was the first example of that. So fundamentally, Erdogan was unwilling to reconcile to a position where he would be a ceremonial figure and not have real power as the president. So he set off on a path of saying, I'm going to change the system of government. The system of government in Turkey will be the presidential system. President will have all powers and the president can have two or three terms. And I will take care of Turkey because as, as any strongman or a populist says, it's only I can fix it. Because look at the record. There was nothing there. The country was in shambles when I took over, I made it. So all his decisions from the time this got into his head till now have been motivated by that. So Gulenists started fighting with him. They came in his way. The Persians after that, he went after them. With the Kurds, the deal was, you know, the head of the PKK, Ojalan, he's in prison in Turkey. Erdogan started a, you know, peace talks with him. And they fundamentally agreed that when Erdogan has a big election, the Kurdish party will support Erdogan to become the executive president. So that was the old man uh, agreeing with Erdogan. Ojalan said, let's do that. Yes, we'll support you. You make a deal with us. We'll solve the Kurdish problem. But his younger people, Ojalans, like Salahuddin Demirtas and you know various others who were running the Kurdish political party, in 2015 elections, and then in June and then in November, they started getting an enormous amount of support from kind of disgruntled liberals and lefties in Turkey. So Salahuddin Demirtas's ambition to grow, he almost felt like HDP can move on from being the small Kurdish party to becoming the real opposition and he could become president or prime minister and you know basically take down Erdogan. And the moment Erdogan saw that, he was like, from 95 onwards, I went all the way to make peace with you. Now you're backstabbing me. You're walking out on the deal we had. So he started, I mean, there were a couple of incidents and he declared that the peace process is over. And then the Kurdish fighters came into the cities. They dug up these barricades and Erdogan was angry as hell. And he sent him the tanks. And I mean, basically after that, it was it was hell. It was Grozny style counterinsurgency. But fundamentally, all of that comes out of the sense of betrayal. You had promised to vote for me, you did not. Final mini topic is the media and the press and the level of press crackdown in Turkey. Um, I was not aware of. It's definitely been a characteristics of, of society since the coup. Sort of, it's a long policy of this. And I think you quoted that in the first half of 2015, more than 50% of the requests Twitter received for removal of content from its site came from the Turkish government. Yes. Downing. On Facebook, the only place that beats the Turkish government is India, but India is much bigger. Yeah. Um, and especially the sharing of images. I think there was um, someone who'd been killed by local... It was a Kurdish man who'd been killed by local... Right. Yeah. And so it became not an investigation of the wrongdoing of the murder, but of the sharing of those images in Turkey. And so I was living in India about at the time of some of the events in this book and the quote over anti-nationalism and- the whole genius, Yeah, and what was characteristic to me about discourse in civil society is the extent to which everyday people felt like it was their job to be patriotic and nationalistic and, you know, to police the media and anyone who wanted to say something that was not of that. Was that also your experience in Turkey? No, it is similar. I mean, you know, this kind of what also happens when you have this kind of majoritarian politics and, and kind of these elected autocrats in power is that one of the weapons that is very handy in such cases is this very militant nationalism. Like the way the Turks would talk about the Kurdish people, it's intense and the hatred is 
uh, scary. It was exactly what you, we saw in India. Anyone who was being critical of Modi and his people or talking about Kashmir was anti-national, is basically calling somebody a traitor or a, a hint of treason. And these are very dangerous phrases which can get a man killed. No, I mean, that, that sense of the fury of the nationalism was scary both in India and Turkey. It's, uh, it's everywhere. It's, it's a sad thing. It's a terrible thing. Like if you're on the wrong side of those tracks, it, it must be hell to live there. Mm -hmm. You're back in America for a week on your book tour, and you've lived here for some years before, right? Yeah, I have lived here. Yeah, and you attended graduate school in New York. How does America feel to you this time? It's lovely. We have a man from Queens who is in the White House. What else do you want? All the Manhattan and, you know, Brooklyn people look down upon Queens all the time. Now you get Donald Trump. Look, I mean, honestly, apart from jokes, like, I, I mean, it's... On the surface, New York looks the same, but every conversation you have, and, and I work for the New York Times, so every, I work as an editor on the op page. We are, I mean, everything we edit is Trump. Like, mm -hmm. like my day job is 14 hours of my life is obsessed. It's predominantly something or other to do with Donald Trump. And in the early days, people were completely freaking out. And now, okay, now we know what we're dealing with. So let's get on with thinking harder about analyzing it better, uh, looking at what we are missing, looking at better ways of doing it. As a journalist, I, I see that. But the first month was completely, you know, people people were just shocked and stunned. Now it's okay. We have, This is an accepted reality. This is what we dealing with so how do you and the great thing here has been that the press especially collapsed in turkey is almost collapsed in india there's only like a couple of places which have the kind of moral courage to stand up not all the big papers are kind of normalizing hate and hate speech you know going out of their way to please the authorities it's on the, only the small players that are still showing the courage but the American institutions have showed greater resilience. I have to say, you know, the Post, the Journal, the Times, and that's something that gives hope. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you for speaking with me today. And I will, okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.